Hey, thank you so much, team, and thank you, congregation, for, for singing out praises to our Lord. This time the kids are dismissed to their program. Recently, our, our daughter Shelby, uh, when she moved to San Diego, or Escondido, she has uh, she's been searching for work, and she had several interviews, and uh, at one interview in particular, she's interviewing with a supervisor, and uh, the supervisor shows up late and is completely disorganized, and so when you get to the part of the, sur- of the interview, when it's like, well, what, uh, what position are you applying for? And in her mind, she's probably thinking, uh, yours, because I'm sure I can do a lot better job than you're doing at this. But she did not say that. I don't know if you've ever thought that, you know, if I was in charge, things would be a whole lot better. You ever have those thoughts cross your mind? I, w- I went to this massive uh, high school, um, Mira Mesa High School, the home of the Marauders. <laughs> Uh, about 4,000 students, um, so probably the size of, of Cambria population when it's not uh, summer. Um, and uh, a few years after I graduated, there was a student, I mean a teacher strike. The students are always striking. But there's a teacher strike and, uh, in the district, and it was total chaos because they were trying to not close the school. And so they just needed to frantically hire a bunch of, uh, of temporary substitutes just to you know, try not to to shut down the school. And so in the chaos of frantically hiring a bunch of substitute teachers, uh, one clever student uh, dressed up, got his briefcase, went down and applied, and apparently in all the frenzy of hiring so many people so fast, uh, they hired this guy uh, as a temporary teacher. And of course, he goes into the classroom, and uh, if there was an authority problem before, uh, that didn't get any better uh, with this uh, student in charge. The lack of competent authority in the classroom, uh, this problem was not solved. So uh, could he have done better? Uh, We always think maybe that's the case. Okay, one more example. I don't know if anybody remembers uh, Pegasus. So this was, uh, well, I'm going to have to say it's a slightly before my time, just barely. Uh, In 1968, the Youth International Party, they were so disillusioned with the lack of competent government that they nominated Pegasus as a, this pig, as a presidential candidate. Um, so they're in Chicago uh, having the acceptance speech, um, and in the middle of it, uh, Pegasus and 10 supporters were arrested. And uh, in fact, one of the officers said that, uh, that they got squealed on. It's a true story. Uh, in, in the courtroom trial, they, they denied that statement, but um, he thought, anybody has got to be able to do better than what we have here. So there's this funny thing with power, with rule, with authority. Uh, we tend to misunderstand it, and that leads to a few problems. And here, here's just a few things that happen when we, we misunderstand uh, power. And one of them is we put a false hope in a leader, whether that's a politician or a church leader or a parent or whoever it might be. We put this false hope where we think, uh, things are great if my man or woman is in charge. That will solve the problems. Things will be just great. Well, there's this other line of thinking where some of us, we just resist any kind of authority at all. And we think, well, things would be great if nobody's in charge. Wouldn't that be fantastic? And then probably all of us on some days think, well, things would be great if I'm in charge. 
if I get my way, and we tend to misuse the position that we're given us. And still, things are not great. As we look around, things are not great. And history is plagued with flawed leadership. Long, long lines of flawed leadership. And so the prophet Ezekiel speaks into this situation. Uh, Ezekiel has some really harsh words against flawed leaders, and he has hopeful words for those who have suffered uh, under them. So we will be in Ezekiel, uh, continuing our series uh, this morning, chapter 34. And so the setting, if you remember, uh, you've been joining us for the last several weeks, is the first major chunk of the book, Ezekiel has all uh, these things of judgment to say against God's people. And then he shifts gears and he, he has a lot of harsh things to say of judgment against all the nations that uh, have abused God's people. And in this chapter, he turns his focus on the leaders of the nations of, uh, of Israel and Judah. And uh, they were a mess. Uh, and so he focuses on, on the leaders, the kings, the rulers, and how they misused their power and really ran the nation uh, into the ground. But he also reveals the solution to the centuries-long misuse of power. So this is all in, in this chapter, before, chapter 34 today. Uh, if you're following along and don't have a Bible with you, there, is, uh, some Bible, there are some Bibles spread out in the pews, and it is on page 722 on those pew Bibles. And it starts off like this in the first verse of chapter 34, Ezekiel. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, that son of man prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, you know, the leaders, those who are in, in charge. Prophesy and say to them, even to these shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, the shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? And this is the basic problem. They were looking out for themselves, not looking out for the sheep. So in this first section of, of the chapter, uh, the first several verses, we see a critique of, of uh, Judah and Israel's kings. And uh, if you're taking notes, filling in blanks, this is guilty kings. The kings of this world bring ruin by selfishly grasping for power. That's kind of how we see it working. Uh, if you read through the books of First and Second Samuel, and especially First and Second Kings and also the Chronicles, they tell this really sad story of the downfall of a kingdom. First the dividing of it, and then, and then the, the northern kingdom comes to ruin, and then the southern kingdom comes to ruin. And you just see this really sad thing being played out of, of king after king rises to power and just uh, drags the nation uh, further into the ground. We see these kind of little glimmers of hope, but it's kind of a blip on the map and just... <laughs> down to ruin. So Ezekiel comes toward at the end of this uh, long series, and, um, and he references back to how these guilty kings, these rulers, were guilty of running the nation into the ground, not just politically, but also morally, and more important, spiritually. They led the people away from, from God. And so in verses 2 to 9, um, we see God has this list of complaints against, uh, against the leaders of his people. And this is all in kind of a sheep-shepherd uh, metaphor, in case you thought he was talking about actual sheep here. Um, 
it'll become clear. Verse 3, here's some of the complaints. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. So he's like, leaders, you get everything out of the sheep, everything out of the people, you exploit them, um, but you give nothing back. You do not provide from them. Verse 4 says, the weak you have not strengthened, and the sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. And the lost you have not sought. In other words, uh, instead of caring for the sheep, just a total neglect. Like, I don't really care what happens to the sheep. I don't care what happens to the people. Verse 4, the end of it, says, and with, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. The kings treated, treated the people harshly rather than compassionately. And all this led to a result in verse 5. It says, so they were scattered. People were run off out of the land. Because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And so they abandoned the people rather than leading the people. And if we could summarize all those uh, accusations against the leaders of God's people, I think we could boil it down to this one word is they were selfish. (laughs) They thought about themselves. And this self-seeking grasping of power at the expense of the people. So the question comes to mind is, why do human leaders tend to use their power so selfishly? Why, why do they have that tendency? Why does leadership go bad? And I think the simple answer is, is because they're humans. <laughs> they're humans. They're like you and they're like me. This is our tendency. It's not um, always our track record. It's not always our experience, but it's always our tendency to leverage the power given us to our own advantage because we're human. Uh, there's a lot of ways this plays out on, in little ways and big ways. I think one way we see this is just in, the, in this assumption that because I paid for a service that, uh, that I am superior over that person who's serving me. And I, I talked to a lady in our church uh, recently. There's, there's several in our church uh, family who have uh, service uh, jobs. And uh, this woman was saying she just had such a difficult week because multiple clients just treated her with, uh, with such contempt because, you know, she's the cleaning lady. <laughs> that, that tendency in us, so when we're in a position above somebody, uh, we abuse that. Another thing we could do is just maybe we have a quick-wittedness about us. That's a kind of power, and we leverage that to dominate conversations or manipulate people. Employers, parents, politicians, church leaders, law enforcement, they all have been guilty of abusing power. Those with more brains or more strength or better looks, they wield that over people who have less of these things. This is sadly human nature. So you take a human and you make him or her king or queen and things are bound to uh, eventually uh, go south. The kings of this world bring ruin by their selfish grasp for power. And the reason is because they're human. (laughs) It's not just a problem 
with the monarchs. Um, yeah, I mentioned First Second Samuel and the kings, but the whole history of God's people, uh, this was a problem. The greatest leaders had their flaws. Uh, you begin when, when God calls out Abraham to, uh, to be the father of a nation of God's own, uh, in a own special way. Uh, Abraham, he had this problem with uh, deceit <laughs> and manipulation and doubt sometimes. Think of his, uh, his sons after him. They had all kinds of dysfunction, you might say. Think of, of Moses, God's you know, ultimate prophet, leading his people out of the, the slavery in Egypt. And Moses lost his temper and didn't get to go into the promised land. You know, Aaron, the, the first high priest, he opposed Moses. Think of the judges that God raised up. Who was the mightiest judge? Samson. That guy was a complete mess. Uh, a womanizer, among other things. He liked honey too much. I don't know. He had, he had a list of problems. Uh, and then we think of the, the greatest uh, monarch, the greatest king over uh, God's people, King David, a man after God's own heart. And we know his story of, of adultery and murder and just terror. So what hope is there if God's greatest are flawed? The answer is not in humanity. <laughs> We turn to verse 11, and the, the chapter takes a turn. It says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. This long track record of people uh, not quite cutting it, people doing more harm than good, and God says, Well, I myself will be the shepherd. I will gather them, I'll, I'll look for them, I'll seek them, I'll care for them. He'll, he'll feed, he'll lead, he'll care for. God is entirely different. He's an entirely different kind of leader. And this chapter makes that abundantly clear as we're contrasted. Here's the track record of humans when you give them uh, the throne. And then instead, here's what God is like. And, and again, in the shepherd metaphor, uh, what, what is God like? Well, he doesn't have this tendency to exploit and neglect and treat harshly and abandon like humans do, but instead, he seeks out his sheep. Verse 12, he says, so I myself will seek out my sheep. And then he rescues them, continuing in verse 12, he just says, I will rescue them. That's what, that's what God will do. In verse 13, he gathers them from the countries. He goes looking for them and bringing them all back home. And he provides for his sheep. He brings them into their own land, verse 13. And he nourishes them. Uh, he says, I will feed them on the mountains. In 14, I will feed them with good pasture. That, that's what God is like as a leader. And he gives safety and peace and security. Verse 15 says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord. It's like, I'll, I'll put them in a place where they could just be totally at ease. They are cared for. It brings to mind the, the imagery of the 23rd Psalm. And he will care for his sheep, and he'll heal his sheep. Verse 16, it says he'll bind up the injured, he'll strengthen the weak. And at the end of verse 16, 
He will feed them in justice. He'll be, he'll be a just leader. This is a completely different kind of ruler. So how will God himself be a shepherd king to his people? How, wh- what does that look like when God is king? How is he going to do all these things? Verse 23 gives us a hint. It says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And so God promises to raise up this Davidic king to be the ideal shepherd. He will be uh, divine. We see in verse 11 that God says, I myself will be the shepherd. And then we see in verse 23, and my servant David I will set up as the shepherd. Um, most likely, this is talking about the, the lineage of David, the Messiah, the anointed one, will be the shepherd. So who is the divine king from David's line? Uh, it's Jesus. God will physically rule over his people in King Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. And when does this take place? Well, I think we could say with fair confidence that this hasn't happened yet. We don't see all these things that he just described happening yet. And this almost certainly takes place when Christ returns. It's a period of time we often call the millennium because of Revelation describing it as a thousand years. And it's a time that again and again and again and again and again, the prophets say, uh, God will judge, but there'll come a day when God himself will gather the descendants of Abraham together. He'll put them back in the land of promise. Uh, as a, Collectively, they'll turn their hearts to, to him. He'll dwell among them. It'll be justice. It'll be peace. It'll be this completely idyllic kind of a situation. Even the climate will be changed. Politics will be changed. Um, it'll be all productive. It'll be a totally different kind of place. Prophet after prophet after prophet said, this is going to happen. I think it's interesting that, you know, maybe a hundred years ago, um, by and large, the church just kind of scratched their head at how in the world would that even happen? And then in 1948, we saw uh, the descendants of Abraham, the people, the Jewish people, they got their nation again, and, and uh, politically, they returned to the land. And they're like, whoa, maybe God is up to something here as uh, descendants of Abraham keep migrating to that land. I, I think, you know, a couple generations ago, we wouldn't have even pictured how that might work out. But God is uh, bigger than our doubts. But I don't want to miss what the main point I think Ezekiel's making here. And the main point for us is not to get all our, uh, you know, our eschatological timelines in order, but instead is to remember this fact is that only King Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, can bring true life and true peace. If you remember one thing today, I, I want it to be this. Only King Jesus can bring true life and true peace. So back to Ezekiel, I think um, as I was looking at this passage, I thought, 
Why is this so, uh, such a timely message uh, that Ezekiel is giving to the people? Why this message? Why this emphasis here? Because it seemed like he was about to uh, change corners and go a different direction in the book, which we will get to rather soon. Um, but then he detours and, and camps on this. And I think a couple things. In light of the horrible circumstances in the world, we have to remember that God's still in control. God's going to work this out. God has a plan. And second, in light of the horrible leadership examples, we need to remember God's character, what, what God is like. He's completely different than us. He's a different kind of a king. And so they had just seen this track record of king after king, just complete mess. And that kind of messes with our ideas about what authority looks like and what rulers look like, what, what God looks like as the ultimate sovereign. So Ezekiel reminds us that God is nothing like human leaders And the core difference is that he's a good king. (laughs) King Jesus brings life and peace by selflessly serving. If humans tend towards selfish use of power to exploit, neglect, being harsh, to abandon, King Jesus is selfless. He leads, he gathers, he rescues, he provides, he heals, he feeds. In the words of Jesus in the New Testament, in John 10, he says, uh, I'm the good shepherd. <laughs> I'm not like the hired hands who are just out to, you know, for their own sakes. He's like, I'm the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's a completely different kind of a leader. Why is, is Jesus so different than human leaders? Because he's more than human. <laughs> he's, he's God. That's why he's that kind of a leader. And I think in Jesus' first coming, we get this beautiful picture of the selfless character of King Jesus. We saw him lay down his life for his sheep. We saw him in his, in his authority, in his gentleness, in his, in his compassion, in his desire just to gather people under his, his wings. We saw the selfless character of King Jesus. When he comes back in his second coming, we'll see the supreme control of King Jesus, where his rule will be so uh, overt and undeniable. It'll be fantastic, and nobody uh, will miss it. So what does this mean for us? How should we respond to this? How should this uh, affect us? And I think it's the same way that it should affect the people in Ezekiel's time is that in light of the horrible circumstances, we need to remember that God's in control. He's, he's the sovereign. Uh, king Jesus is still king. And in light of the horrible leadership examples that we probably all have in our lives, we need to remember God's character, what God is like. Um, I think this might... Um, if you've been daydreaming so far, I want you to ponder this, uh, this thought right here because I, I just see this happen a lot where we make assumptions about God based on the flawed uh, authorities that we see in the world and in our lives. And, uh, and that sends us down uh, totally wrong directions in our interaction with God. For instance... If we think that God just wants to get all he can out of me, (laughs) 
If that's your mindset, you know, God just wants to, you know, ex- extract all he can out of me. He wants my, my money. He wants my time. He wants whatever it might be, that that's all he's out to get. Then we'll have this certain uh, guarded uh, disposition toward God. We're like, well, I'm going to hang on to this little part because he wants everything. Uh, we also come to God with this attitude that God just wants to constrict me. Like a tyrant that's just like, oh, keep everyone under control. I'm going to, you know, no having fun over here. And oh, your life has too much freedom, so I'll just scrunch it. And he wants to constrict us. Another way I think we respond to God like we do to some leaders is uh, this attitude of, well, if I behave, then it will keep God off my back. So we use actually morality in order to not really engage with God. I'll just kind of, you know, toe the line. I'll show up at church. I'll be, you know, pretty nice. I'll kind of be sort of good. And I won't have to really think that much about, uh, about God, like fly under the radar. Well, God doesn't work that way. And we might come with this attitude of, well, if I misbehave, I better hide. And so when we've done things that we know are wrong, we know we've blown it, we've uh, made a mess of things, uh, if we think God is like a human authority that we've had in our life, we might want to just hide from him. And we try not to think about him, we try to occupy our mind, we try to go to another place, we try to avoid church, whatever it might be. Maybe those people aren't here today, but you can pass this message on if you see them. Uh, but there's other ways to hide besides just not, not showing up. But here we have this portrait of what King Jesus is really like. Uh, he has the sheep's best interest in mind. In fact, this is a way to describe a true love is when you have uh, the other's best interest in mind. Jesus defines love. Um, another way you define true love is that one would lay down his life for another. This is what Jesus liked. We need to wrap our minds around what kind of a leader King Jesus is, and that makes all the difference in how we follow him. So King Jesus is this good king who brings life and peace by selflessly serving. It's what he came to do, to be the servant of all, to seek and save the lost. There's one more section, uh, 25 to the end of the chapter, And this final section describes uh, these glorious conditions under King Jesus. So let's just take the last few minutes to look at this final section. Glorious kingdom. And I think what we could take out of this is that you can experience life and peace by making Jesus your king. So what will life be like under King Jesus' rule? Well, there are several things that are talked about in this section. Protection from, from wild beasts and consistent rain. You know, there's no drought. There's bountiful crops and there's, there's lots of food and there's freedom and there's safety, there's security, there's stability. All these beautiful things that are described in these verses. But the greatest feature is this, is that God's people will abide, dwell together with God in their midst. That's the best feature of all. Verse 30, we'll skip down there, it says, and, and when that all happens, they will know that I am the Lord, their God, with them. 
You know God with us, that's the, um, the name Emmanuel that's given to Jesus. Jesus is God with us. And that they, the house of Israel, that they're my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture. I like how it just adds human there in case some people were still confused that he was actually talking about sheep. Uh, it says, you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture. And I am your God, declares the Lord God. The most beautiful thing about the rule of God is that we get to be with him. (laughs) We get to dwell in his presence. So how do we experience this life and this peace? Uh, Do we need to wait until Jesus returns in his his glory? Do we need to wait for for eternity when when, uh, all things will be made right and will be forever right? Um, this is the beauty of the gospel is we don't have to wait until those things take place. We can be confident that they will take place, but we don't have to wait. In fact, this great little summary of the gospel in the beginning of Mark, uh, 14 and 15, chapter 1 of Mark says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, and here's what Jesus was proclaiming. He was proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. So while prophet after prophet talked about this global plan of God's that centers on, on, his, uh, on his people, the chosen of Abraham's seed, and that, that God's going to do something um, really dramatic that's still yet to come, and he's going to gather Uh, people from all over the world. He has all these things that are going to happen. But the good news, the gospel, for all, is that we don't have to wait. It says, the kingdom is at hand. It's right here. You're looking at the kingdom is right here because the king is right here in front of you. So why is it that you can experience life and peace even when the world is falling apart? is because Jesus provides all you need. When Jesus is your king, you have access to true life, eternal life, to peace, to joy, joy that's beyond just beyond belief, comfort, hope, righteousness that he provides on our behalf. We have a love that can't be separated. We have a purpose. We have promise of forgiveness. And the best part of all of it is we can dwell right now with the king. In your seat right now, in your, in your, on your couch with a cup of coffee, in a walk down the street or whatever, you can dwell with King Jesus as you embrace his invitation to abide with him. To, to walk with him, to follow after him. So the kingdom of God is so glorious because King Jesus is so good. And he's nothing like human rulers or authorities. Um, he has true power, so don't ignore him. He's full of kindness, so don't be frightened by him. He's sacrificial, so don't resist him like he's trying to exploit you somehow. He's forgiving, so don't hide from him. Simply surrender to him. Bow the knee to good King Jesus. All of us who uh, 
count ourselves as followers of Jesus, need, I think, this daily kind of checkup reminder to uh, remind ourselves who's really the king, <laughs> who is uh, who is the sovereign, who's the master, who's, who's in charge. And, and that's really what discipleship is, is... Uh, is putting yourself in a position as a as a underling, so to speak, under the master, you know, an apprentice of the master of King Jesus. We we need to come back every day and say, "Oh yeah, I'm not I'm not in charge. God's in charge. King Jesus is in charge." But I imagine there could be some in here who've who've really never made Jesus king. That's maybe you never even thought of it in those terms. You've never come to a place where you realize that. Um, that really the God of the universe has not placed you as the rightful uh, king of your own heart. But, uh, but God has that place. And uh, it's all of our uh, responsibility and the invitation from God Almighty uh, to bow the knee and make him king in your heart. And Jesus described how that happens is that you, you repent and believe the gospel. You, you turn from the direction you're going. You turn from how you used to think about God. You turn toward him and you trust him. You believe in him as your savior. And then you carry on and follow him as your master, as your, as your sovereign, as your king. Uh, and you can do that right where you're sitting right now. You can choose to accept his invitation and trust him. Uh, also, after the service, uh, if that's just something you'd like to talk more about, if you'd like to pray with somebody about that, I just invite you after this final song just to come right down to the front, and and uh, and I'll be here, and I think a couple others will be here just to, to pray with you. If there's another need in your life that we could we could pray for you, we'd be super happy to do that as well. But don't miss this opportunity to uh, to make Jesus your King. And that's, if you haven't already figured out the final blank, it is make Jesus your king, our final challenge. Uh, Let me pray for us as the team comes back up. Lord God, I'm so thankful that you are nothing like uh, us. (laughs) And that means uh, as a a ruler, as a king, you're nothing like us. And you're so sacrificial, you're so kind, you're so good, you're so righteous and holy and all these things where we fall short. And yet you invite us to, uh, to come and fall at your feet and learn from you and be nourished by you. You invite us to be your children, to be heirs of, of your glorious kingdom. How amazing is that? And so, God, I pray that, that all of us here in this room, we would just with complete abandon, uh, put ourselves at, at your disposal and say, uh, you, you're my king. You are my master. And uh, let, that, uh, let that transform us from the inside out. God, thank you for your great uh, love for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.